0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And He called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So His fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them. The great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, beyond the Jordan. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that your Holy Spirit would speak through me, that we would receive these words from your lips. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a moment that I want you to reflect on that takes place later on in the New Testament, in the book of Acts chapter 17. It's when Paul and Silas reach the Greek city of Thessalonica, and they start doing their ministry there. Paul starts teaching in the synagogue week after week, and the message that he is spreading is one that the people are ready to receive, but there are critics. There's a howl of protest that comes from the leaders of the synagogue at the teaching of Jesus that's going on there. It's never nice to be criticized. It's never nice to have people call you out and say bad things about you. But it is sometimes a gift when your enemies, in accusing you, say exactly the right words. When they sum up your crime in just the right way that you can own it and recognize it. And that's what they do here in Acts chapter 17. This is the accusation that they make against Paul and Silas. They say, these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Which is exactly what they're doing. There is no misunderstanding. They are proclaiming a new kingdom come, and a new king named Jesus, a king who rules and reigns over all things what I love is the first part of that statement. These are the men who have turned the world upside down. Not just who've introduced some new ideas in religion. Not just who are teaching a slightly different interpretation of the Old Testament than I personally subscribe to. But these are the men who are turning the world upside down. Who are turning everything on its head. Years and years later, in the 1640s, during the English Civil War, when the King of England was deposed and eventually beheaded, when the nobility were brought low and commoners ruled the land, there was a famous ballad that was written to describe how crazy the world had gotten, and it drew on this text. The the title of the ballad is The World Turned Upside Down. Because again, it wasn't just a little bit of political reform that had been introduced. It was like the way that we live had been changed forever. Everything that we thought was high and noble and exalted has been brought low. And everything that we thought was weak and worthless has been exalted. The world has been turned upside down. The good news of Jesus' kingdom, in other words, is bad news for anybody whose heart He's invested in the old kingdom, in the kingdom of darkness, in the, the rule of sin and of death. Christopher Hibbert, the historian, wrote a, a book about the English Civil War, about the period after the, the beheading of the king, and when eventually there was a restoration that came, play, came to play. And in those years, writing about them, he, he titled his book that same thing, The World Turned Upside Down, to try to capture the sense of upheaval that they felt because upheaval really is the word and it's something we need to get in touch with again, because I'm not sure that when we hear the message of the kingdom, it brings with it for us, for our ears, the same sense of upheaval that it clearly did for those who received it in the early days of the apostolic ministry. And depending on where your heart is, the gospel of the kingdom threatens everything or It promises everything, the fulfillment of all of God's promises, the bringing about of every good thing. And that moment in Thessalonica of upheaval is one that we actually see the roots of here in this moment at the end of Matthew chapter 4 as Jesus lays a foundation for his kingdom. The foundation of Christ's kingdom is brought in in this passage. There's an authoritative new order that is being proclaimed and instituted in these words. This sermon is the last sermon in this sermon series. We've looked at the first four chapters of the book of Matthew, and this is a sort of prologue, an introduction. We're just about to get into the Sermon on the Mount, the first big discourse that Matthew will record, compiling All these teachings of Jesus that will go through chapter 5, 6, and 7. So everything that's come before is preparing us. And what we've just read is kind of the the icing on the cake or or the cherry on the top of the dessert or the topper on the top of the tree. Like, Like this brings it all together. And these things we see Jesus doing, the stage is being set, the foundation is being laid for Jesus to proclaim this new ethic of his new kingdom. It's fitting that on this day, when we reflect on the reign of Christ, we look at this foundation of the Savior's kingdom, because we might say that everything that happens after this in Matthew's gospel, in Acts, and now is built on the foundation that is being laid right here, where we see Jesus calling, we see Jesus preaching, and we see Jesus healing in his Galilean ministry. So in the first section of our text, which is verses 18 through 22, that first paragraph in your order of worship, Matthew gives us a glimpse of Jesus calling four of his disciples. As we've already seen with Matthew, what he's doing here, he's skipping a stone across the history. He's giving us moments here that aren't necessarily the next thing that happened after the last thing he told us. We're kind of accelerating the pace. And here he's kind of summarizing for us the calling of the disciples, the, the the actual process of the calling of all the various disciples. If you take all of the different data points from the Gospels, you can see that there's kind of a a, 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 a periodicity to it, where at first the disciples are sort of sometimes accompanying Jesus, but sometimes... They're still in their everyday lives. Eventually, they're, they're mostly kind of all the time with him, but occasionally they're also still fishing, and then they're sort of commissioned to go out, and they're sort of full-time doing this. We're getting here kind of the, the tip of that iceberg, the beginning of that process, and the calling of Peter and Andrew and James and John, two sets of brothers who are promised that when they leave their nets behind, Christ will make them fishers of men. That's what he does. These are significant names. Peter, of course, will come to be the leader of all the apostles. Andrew, his brother, is a gatherer. He's one of those people who's essential to the life of the church. Andrew is the one we see in scripture, always bringing people to see Jesus. Come see this guy. You've got to meet this guy. James, he's the first of the apostles who will face martyrdom. His brother John is the beloved disciple, the one who enjoyed a special relationship of love with Jesus. So here we see him handpicking his followers. And then in the next paragraph, verses 23 through 25, we see Jesus at work. We see almost like a little montage of what the ministry of Jesus looks like. We see him proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. Kind of the two planks of his ministry there. The, The teaching stuff, the proclamation, and then also the the miracles, the healing. Interesting to note here that Jesus' ministry, unlike John the Baptist, Jesus isn't a wilderness ministry. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. He's going to like the center of religious authority. He's going into the place where all the people who are already following God are, and he's teaching them from scripture. He's won a victory in the wilderness, and now he's come into the synagogue, teaching there, proclaiming, His gospel message with authority. Not the way the scribes do, and this is a point made in several gospels. Matthew himself will make this in chapter 7, but Mark in chapter 1 of Mark, verse 22, speaking about this moment in Capernaum, makes that point that people are astonished that when Jesus teaches, he doesn't teach like a scholar. He doesn't teach like a guy who studied this stuff and went to a good school and has really published some good peer reviewed papers on the meaning of this stuff. Jesus is he's speaking like a guy who, who was there. He speaks like a guy who wrote this stuff, not who studied it. He speaks with an authority that astonishes the people who hear him. He doesn't just speak with authority. His word doesn't just carry the authority of like truth. Like You hear it and you say, yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about. His word has a different kind of authority because when he speaks, he heals people. He alleviates suffering. He drives away their sickened conditions. So he speaks with authority in more ways than one. That healing power of Jesus draws great crowds from throughout the region, throughout the nation. Matthew gives us a summary of all the people he's healing. He says they're sick. They're afflicted with various diseases and pains, kind of generally speaking. But then he gives us a few narrower definitions to kind of hold on to. What are the kinds of things that Jesus is doing? We'll see some specific healing events later, but here, generally speaking, Jesus is is healing those oppressed by demons, people who have demonic influences ruling over them, who have lost the power of agency, control over their lives. Jesus has conquered the master of demons already, and now he's uh, having his way with the minions of Satan as well. He's also healing those who are having seizures. When you think about seizures, you think about uh, epileptic seizures, other kind of seizures, it's interesting that, that this is a kind of sickness focused on because of what happens, a sudden unexpected loss of control or agency over one's own body. He's healing uh, paralytics as well. People who have permanently lost control or agency over some or all of their bodies. So in these healings, Jesus is taking people who are broken, who have lost control, and he is bringing them to wholeness. He is restoring their control of themselves. Matthew's emphasis here, when he speaks in general of Jesus' healing work, reveals something about the nature of Christ's kingdom, what the gospel is here to do for us as well. The gospel coming in power is bringing wholeness and it's restoring lost ability to people who have lost control of themselves as a result of sin whether it's direct or indirect consequences of the fall, the gospel is bringing wholeness to them again. The world was already turned upside down before the good news was proclaimed. The world was turned upside down by sin. That fallen, broken world isn't right side up. It is the gospel that is making things right. The only thing the gospel threatens is your bondage, your oppression, your loss of control, your loss of self. But the good news is that the kingdom is here to turn reality right side up. That it's true for them, but it's also true for us, where we have lost control, where our own bodies seem not to serve our wishes any longer. We seem as if we are oppressed, unable To do what we want to do. Unable even to want what we want. The gospel is here to restore us. That's what it means for the gospel to have come in power. It's not just that the words that are spoken are true. But they are healing and restorative words as well. That they bring us back to a wholeness that has been lost. And we see Jesus here. Not only speaking with authority, but laying a foundation for future authority as well. Because the authority of the apostles is going to become the foundation of our faith. And we see him here choosing, calling these apostles who will one day be pillars of our faith. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.27 that God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. He chose what is weak to shame the strong. And I think you see these words being borne out in Jesus' selection process as he handpicks his disciples. Socrates, for a follower, had Plato. Plato, for a disciple, had Aristotle. Jesus has fishermen. And it's not because they're the only followers he could get. It's because he picked them. He didn't go into the synagogues and pick rabbis. He didn't go and pick philosophers, learned men. Jesus intentionally goes down to the waterfront, sees guys doing manual labor jobs, and says, I want them. These will be my pillars. This is my foundation. This is the material I'm going to build my church out of, which says something about how he intends to do things. He recruited men who didn't even aspire to religious office. They were unlettered fishermen. They wouldn't have been any philosophers first pick. And yet from these men, Jesus, like a, like a mason, hewing material out of raw rock, will create a firm foundation. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 2. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this building, the church, that we are being put into like bricks, the foundation of it is these guys as unqualified as they were for the work. Incredible to realize what these fishers of men are going to accomplish before it's all said and done. These humble men will carry on the ministry and the message of the kingdom. When Jesus is gone, these humble men will be filled with the Holy Spirit. These humble men, through the Spirit, will receive the power to do miracles just like we see Jesus doing. These humble men through the Spirit will set God's word down on parchment. These humble men through the Spirit will be the men who turn the world upside down. But you never would have guessed it if you'd seen them here casting their nets, mending their nets. Jesus saw it because Jesus intended to do it through them. What was their special skill? What was their aptitude? What was the thing he saw in them that no one else could see? There wasn't a special aptitude. There wasn't a special skill. It's not that these guys were fishermen, but, but really, if only they had gone to, to school, they would have made the best philosophers. No. Their special attribute was their chosenness. What made them unique and distinct was that he chose them, that he picked them out, that he lived with them and in them and that he shaped them and he spoke to them. And then he filled them with his spirit so that they could speak for him. That was their power. Their only aptitude was their chosenness. And because of that, because of their lack of merit, everything that they did would be to his glory. No one ever looked at the disciples of Jesus and said, you know what, it wouldn't have mattered who their rabbi was. These guys were always going to do something big. I mean, look at them. Now, you might look at Plato and think he would have done fine without Socrates. And Aristotle would have done fine without Plato. But these guys would have been nothing without him. And that's the way in which they are most like us. Most like us. Because we too would be nothing. From them. They do great things in the book of Acts, and we do things transformed by the Spirit. All that stuff is to the glory of God. Everything He does through us is obviously His work, His alone. And yet, when Paul speaks about these men, he calls them the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone, but have you ever thought about the relationship of a cornerstone to a foundation? The cornerstone, it doesn't go under the foundation. It goes alongside it. It is part of the foundation. Jesus didn't just choose these guys to be like his his first-level followers. Jesus chooses them and builds a foundation out of them that he himself is part of. He makes them one with him. And in that sense, too, we are like them. He has made us all one in him. It's not just that he, as king, rules and reigns over us, but he, as our king, has invited us onto his throne to be with him, to be in him. He gives them authority, and he invites us, too, to enter into his reign. The authority of the gospel, the authority of Christ's kingdom is not vested in nobility of blood or ancestry or merit and personal distinction. All of the things that impress us about people, that sway us, all of that is overturned. And Christ intentionally takes the weak and makes them strong. He takes the foolish and he makes them wise so that all the credit goes to him. So be careful what authority you follow, because we have a tendency to follow all the wrong authorities, to be impressed by all the wrong things. I'm following him because I'm so impressed with his credentials. I'm going to do what this guy says because he's got so many wonderful skills. I'm going to believe his message because he's so well-spoken. It sounds so good the way he puts it. I mean, he's rich, so he must be doing something right. I'm going to follow him. Have you ever seen how many followers he has? That's where I want to be. All of the criteria that we would use to choose the ones that we would follow, Jesus overturns all of that. Instead of that, look to spiritual authority. Look to apostolic authority. In Christ's kingdom, the authority that matters is his word. The authority that we should follow and listen to is what he has said in his book. That's the authority that his miracles attest to. The reality of the miracles we see Jesus performing is that they attest to the authority of the message. And why is it that the two things Matthew wants us to know Jesus is doing before he tells us what Jesus is teaching, he wants us to know this guy is teaching in synagogues with authority, But he's also healing the sick. He's doing these miraculous signs. So why miracles? And when we think about Bible times, we think of Bible times almost like people used to think of like the fairies or something. It was like this enchanted world where there's something kind of magical about it. And there were always these miracles happening all of the time. Like back then, I mean, people died, but maybe it wasn't a big deal because they might just be raised from the dead because stuff was unpredictable. You ran out of food, but hey, it didn't really matter because maybe God would do a miracle and and your little bit of food would just keep being extended on and on and on. And we imagine it was always like that. And that things like that wouldn't have impressed people back then, but we live in a sort of demythologized age. Something happened, uh, science came in, and and, and now that kind of stuff isn't happening anymore. And it's a shame because wouldn't it be cool to live in a magical world like that? But the reality is, in Scripture, it wasn't always like that. It wasn't usually like that. When God did miraculous things, people were blown away by them. They were awestruck by them because the miracles in Scripture punctuated very specific times. The miracles in Scripture attested to the message of Scripture. So those age of signs, the ages of miracles that we tend to see, They're typically accompanied by some new chapter, a new wrinkle in God's self-revelation. Now, as we study Matthew's gospel, we'll have plenty of opportunity to dig into specific miracles and think about what they mean. But right now, let's stand back as Matthew does and contemplate them as a whole. Like all the sickness that we see Jesus healing, all that sickness is a consequence of mortality. And mortality is synonymous with death. I don't mean like people sinned and to punish them for their specific sins, God made them paralytics or God gave them seizures or something like that. What the Bible teaches is that all of our mortality, like all of our physical shortcomings and illness, are a consequence of living in a fallen world, living under the reign in the kingdom of sin and death. Scripture speaks of. The reign of sin and death that way, like it's a kingdom. In the same way that it speaks of Jesus' reign, like it's a kingdom. And these two kingdoms are opposed to one another. The kingdom of death and sin is the one that Jesus has come to overturn. The kingdom of death and sin is synonymous with Satan's power. And there's no better way to show that you have broken Satan's power than to heal the sick but to show that sin and death no longer have control over the bodies of people who have been subject to them. When human beings fight sickness and death through medicine, through our God-given talents and abilities, we are fighting death and sin, and that is a wonderful and noble thing, and we should be grateful for all of our various callings in which we fight against the rule of sin and, death. and we shouldn't lose hope just because we always fail. Just because no matter how good the medicine is, the patient will eventually die. Because the struggle itself is the point to fight back against this bondage, this captivity to sin. But Jesus doesn't heal like a doctor does. Jesus doesn't heal with medicine. Jesus heals with authority. He doesn't heal like a doctor any more than he teaches like a scribe. Jesus heals by saying, be healed. The disease and the death obey. The healing testifies that the rest of his words are true. The people follow him because of the healing, but they listen to what he says, knowing that it is true, that it has authority. The Miracles attest the message. We see Jesus working miracles, and later we'll see his apostles doing the same thing through him. Some people argue that this should still be going on. But once you realize that the miracles attest to the message, you can at least understand why things might be different now. Because Jesus and the apostles spoke the message of Revelation, and the Spirit worked through the apostolic generation, those men, and sometimes their followers, to inscripturate that authoritative word, which we have for us in Scripture. And we have all of it in Scripture. The message that God has revealed is complete and whole, lacking in nothing. That revelation is complete. We have the promise, we have the words, and we have the seal of their authority and authenticity. Because that revelation is whole, there is nothing left to reveal until Jesus himself returns which gives us some things to think about. Matthew has laid a foundation for us in his gospel so that we might hear the words that Jesus begins to speak in chapter 5 and receive them with authority and understand that the guy who is saying these things has demonstrated that, that his power is real, that the kingdom that he is proclaiming really is upon us and it really is turning everything upside down in unimaginable ways. People from Galilee, people from the Decapolis, the ten cities around in that region, people as far away as Jerusalem and Judea heard what was going on. People far off heard what was happening and they flocked to him. They flocked to see this kingdom in action for themselves. These people from Sioux Falls flocked to him and come to see the power of, of his kingdom at work as well. For the very same reason that they were drawn, we have been drawn to him. We have come to hear this word of power, to see his power at work in our lives. And also this, we follow him because we look at the world. We look at the state of the world. We look at what is valued in the world. We see the sin and the sickness. We see the death And we want to see it turned upside down. We want to see it overturned. We want to see it made right. We want to see this world restored. And so we follow Him because He has the power to do this. Jesus, our King, is here. And He turns the world upside down. Through the power of His Spirit, His apostles went out. And they turned the world upside down. And now through his holy word day by day, from that day to this day, he is turning the kingdom of darkness upside down. He is turning the weakness into strength. And he is turning the wisdom of this world on its head. That's what the gospel is doing, and that's why we're here. Because when everything is turned upside down, the only place left to stand is on the foundation that Jesus Christ himself has built. There is no other place than the firm foundation that Jesus made for us, his body. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org.